seated. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I don't need to show of hands because I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but I am curious about how many of us gathered here this morning gave something up for Lent. And what I'm really curious about it about is how many of you have been perfect in your Lenten discipline? No cheat days, no, oh, I forgot. How many of you have kept faith with the commitment you made almost seven weeks ago now? How many of you have done it perfectly? And then what I'm really curious about, for those of you who have been perfect, I'm curious whether that says more about your holiness or God's goodness, or maybe it says something about what you chose to give up. My friend Nathaniel in high school, his father every year would give up watermelon for Lent. And he always kept that discipline perfectly. He never once slept, slipped up. Every single year, he was perfect in his discipline. And Mr. Kissel was a good man with a great sense of humor, so I don't think he meant anything nefarious by this. But I know, also know that many of us will have seasons in our life, and for some of us, those seasons might be decades, in which there's a real chance that we could offer a devotion to God that is entirely safe. There is never any real risk or danger that Mr. Kissel might break his promise to avoid watermelon in Lent. For one thing, as we all know, there's no watermelon available in March or April, but more importantly, Mr. Kissel didn't like watermelon. And if not for today's scripture, we might say this is a good thing. After all, don't we pray every single week, lead us not into temptation. And on our best days, I expect most of us would like to live in a world without any temptations. That's why when we decide that we're going to eat more healthily, we get the junk food out of the house so that it won't even tempt us. That's why when we're worried about the time we spend on social media, we just delete the apps from our phones. That's why we put restrictions on our kids' internet access. It's a good thing not to be tempted. But today, as Jesus draws near to the decisive hour of our salvation, we find that Jesus is not avoiding temptation. Instead, he is confronting it and wrestling with it and praying with groans and sighs over a temptation that his entire ministry has been leading to. Here in Gethsemane, Jesus is facing everything that has been challenging him since he first did battle in the desert with the temptations that were presented to him there. And today is a good day for us to watch with Jesus and to pay attention to three questions. When should we risk temptation? And how do we answer temptation? And finally, as we draw this series to a close, this Lenten series in which we have drawn close to each and every day of Christ's passion, 
There is a much larger, bigger picture question. After all the awful number of risks that your pastors have asked you to take, the big question is, what makes it worth it? So those are our three questions this morning. And my prayer is that by the end of them, you will feel emboldened, not just by this sermon, but by our entire journey with Jesus. My prayer is that you will feel emboldened to take risks for your faith and to know which risks are worth taking. That last bit's important, knowing which ones are worth taking. It's incredibly important if we're going to be honest and faithful in answering our first question today, when should we risk temptation? Because I can imagine that you have all kinds of objections that come to mind when I suggest that we should risk temptation. If you've ever tried to break an addiction, you know that 80% of the battle is in avoiding the places and the people and the situations that tempt you most. If you have a deep Bible knowledge, you might remember the time that the devil tempted Jesus to throw himself off of the temple and let God save him. Basically, the devil was saying, put yourself in a dangerous situation just so God can show you show off by saving you. And you might remember that Jesus answered the devil by quoting scripture, dropping Deuteronomy 6.16 on him and saying, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And if all these objections come to your mind this morning, then I want to begin by telling you that you are entirely right. What I am talking about when I talk about risking temptation is not about testing yourself or testing God. If you were hoping that this sermon about risking temptation would give you permission to tease yourself for Jesus, then please pay attention. Because the temptation that Jesus risked in the garden was not to do something that he ought not do or knew he should not do. No, Jesus' temptation was that he might not do what he came to do. That he might not do what he was called to do. And the temptation that Jesus willingly risked was not the temptation to do something bad. It was the temptation to quit before he had accomplished the good work that he was anointed for. And if we are set apart, If we have been deputized by God in our baptism to do God's work, then the risk we take is that we will do something that leaves us so vulnerable and is so kingdom-minded that we will be tempted to just quit. When you say every week in communion, that you are offering yourself as a holy and living sacrifice, you are risking a temptation. You are risking a moment when you will offer less than yourself, less than your everything. You are promising to offer God your all and you are running the temptation that you might not want to. Jesus set himself on a path that led to the cross, and he began to walk that path long before he ever stepped into the garden. He began walking the path to the cross even before he stepped into Jerusalem, before the events of Holy Week. But at this moment that we hear today in the garden, Jesus is confronted with the full cost of the path that he has been walking for a very long time, and he is tempted. He is tempted to walk away. He is tempted to give up on his purpose. 
He is tempted to call down a battalion of angels who could kill his enemies so that he doesn't have to die for them. And thank God that he withstood the temptation. Because if Christ had waged war on his enemies, who among us could hope to escape? The point is Jesus was tempted to find another way. But the cross was the only way, so he surrendered to it anyway. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said to us that when Christ asked a person to come and follow, he asked that one to die. He is inviting us to give our lives in such a totalizing way that we will be tempted to break faith, to offer less than the fullness of our lives to God. If you ignore your neighbor, you'll never be tempted to hate them. But if you serve your neighbor, you will be tempted. You'll be tempted to expect their gratitude. You'll be tempted to resent them when they don't give it or not like you thought they should. You'll be tempted to quit serving others on the day when it just feels like it's not making any difference to any of the others and you will be tempted to forget that the reason we serve is not to change the world but so that we can be changed. You'll forget that the point of serving others is to humble yourself, not them with your good example. If you choose to deny yourself and follow Jesus, to truly take up a cross, then you'll be tempted to resent all those who seem to never deny themselves anything. And maybe that is why the great saints have always said that they were growing more aware of their own sin, even as the people around them were growing more astonished by their goodness. The only way to completely avoid temptation is to withdraw from the mission of God. And in that why so many folks are reluctant to commit, say, to a particular church. Now, so long as we're just visiting, there's no temptation. So long as there's no promise, we can't break a promise. You can't be tempted to quit on something you never start. Isn't that why it's so tricky in the early stages of a romance? So long as there's no commitment being made, no one can be betrayed. Committing yourself means you now have the option of breaking faith. It is risking temptation. So there will be times when we are called to risk temptation, to risk doing something that seems like it is likely to be too much for us, but that does not mean we are called to give in to the temptation itself. And if we're going to risk temptation, if we're going to risk doing something so totalizing for God that we might be tempted to quit, we better know how to answer the temptation when it comes. And Jesus, again, sets the example for us here, showing us two gifts that God has given us to help us move through the tempting moment without losing our way. And how do we answer temptation? We answer it as Jesus did, with care and with prayer. Let's begin with the most surprising discovery in the garden. Jesus needs the care of his disciples. Now, of course, his disciples are not very good at caring. They're terrible at their job. But that doesn't change Jesus' fundamental desire and need for them. 
for the presence and the attention of those who are closest to him. Notice what Jesus asked of James and Peter and John. He does not ask them to fix anything. He simply asks them to keep watch, to stay alert. He doesn't need them to solve his problems. He doesn't even ask them to say nice words and tell him that everything will be all right. Instead, Jesus asks them to be witnesses, to keep watch. He is asking, and all he is asking is, please don't leave me alone. And isn't that a challenge for all of us who would sometimes like to go it alone? Sometimes we even use God as our excuse for going it alone. We think that relying on God means we won't have to rely on others. But here we have Jesus, the incarnate word, the one who is in very nature God, the one who was and is and is to come, and Jesus is not exempt from the fundamental need of companionship. To know that he's not in it alone. Jesus is honest with the disciples, and he tells them plainly, I am overwhelmed with sorrow. And if Jesus can be overwhelmed, then surely we're allowed to be too. And at this moment when he is most tempted to find a way out, Jesus is anchored to his purpose and kept in the will of the Father by the presence of Peter and James and John. And secondly, Jesus answers temptation not only with the care of those he brings alongside him, but he answers that temptation with prayer. And what I especially want us to notice this morning is the nature of Jesus' prayer. Notice how honest it is. Jesus is not putting on a brave face here. Jesus comes to God, the Father with no pretense. He asks plainly, take this cup from me. He is saying, that's what I want. I'm not going to pretend to have a holier desire than I do. I want out. I'm not sure what your private prayer life is like. But my experience is that it is hard to get church people to say plainly what they want. It's true in general, but especially in prayer. We're afraid of drawing too much attention to ourselves. We are reluctant to admit that we really need prayer. We are afraid of being a burden. Or maybe of revealing our own neediness. I have to tell y'all, y'all are some of the most prayed over people in all of Alabama. I know that because every Thursday we gather for our staff meeting. And for the last year when we have staff meeting, I say, how can we pray for one another? And all they want to pray about is you. We will name every need and every concern and every heart we are hurting for before we ever get around to admitting how we need prayer. Finally, about a month ago, I said, don't worry. We're still going to pray for everybody else. But it's been a year now. How can we pray for you? How many small groups and Bible studies have you been a part of where y'all prayed for everyone you knew but no one in the group would admit that they needed prayer or admit what their real need was. That's why I'm so grateful for our reading this week from Amy Jillabeen's Entering the Passion, where she names all these different moments of personal prayer that we find in the scriptures. It is not a sign of humility if you never pray for yourself. In fact, it can be an act of willfulness. 
It's a way of acting as if you need nothing. It's a way of living as if you don't need saving. And we all do. So let us learn to ask God plainly and tell God plainly what we are asking for. And then let us be brave enough to surrender the answer to Jesus. Jesus asks God plainly, and then he plainly surrenders control over whether he will get what he wants. Because we trust God, and we know that God will not use against us. We can share with God honestly from our own heart, but if we demand that God give us everything we want, then we are no longer surrendering it to God. We are trying to bend God to our will, to control God. That's not confessing our neediness. All we've done is tried to control God, to exercise some spiritual power rather than surrendering to God's power. The purpose of prayer is not to make God give us our heart's desire. The purpose of prayer is to make our hearts like God's so that we can desire what God desires so that our hearts can learn to beat in time with God's own. So Jesus says to the Father, this is my will. And then he says, but not what I will, but what you do. Just a couple weeks ago, my wife Jennifer was telling me about an older professor who teaches in her seminary. And he told the class, most of my prayers these days are third-hand prayers. God, I don't want what you want, I pray. But I want to want what you want. God, I don't love my enemy. And I don't even want to love my enemy. But I want to want to love my enemy. God, I don't want to give up this worry. But I want to want to. That's an honest prayer. And that is a prayer of surrender. And if we won't be honest with God, and if we won't accept God's honest response to us, then we are still playing instead of praying. But real prayer, the kind that requires real attention to our own heart and to God's, that kind of prayer goes to work within us and it accomplishes immeasurably more than we would ever dare to ask or imagine. And that brings me to the last question I hope we know this morning. A question that hangs not only over this passage, but over the entire passion of Jesus Christ. Why risk it at all? I know that there are more than a few of us this Sunday who spend a good portion of our time analyzing risks and benefits. Insurance folks, bankers, investors, you've heard a lot about the risks for the last six weeks. You've heard us asking you to risk your reputation, to risk righteous anger, to risk being challenged, risk rejection, risk losing friends. And today we even invite you to risk temptation. And it's only fair for you to wonder, when do we get to the benefits? What's the upside? What makes the risk worth it? And the answer, of course, is salvation. Plain old salvation. 
Jesus said it himself. Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up a cross and follow me. And whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life will preserve it. And please don't misunderstand. I am not saying that we take these risks so that we can do it to prove we really mean it when we say we're on Jesus' side, that we believe in Jesus. I am not saying that this is how you earn your salvation. I am not saying that these risks are the price of salvation. The song says that Jesus paid it all. The price is paid. And you have nothing to prove to God. Because Jesus died for you and forgave you long before you knew anything about him. And still Jesus invites us to risk our lives. Not because we are earning our salvation. No, we are willing to take these risks because this is what salvation looks like. We are willing to take these risks because this is what life looks like when it has been set free from the fears and the anxieties and the self-preservation that would enslave us. We take these risks because this is what it means to live as if Jesus really has paid it all. As if we have nothing to lose. The philosopher John McMurray once said, all religion is concerned to overcome fear. And false religion says, false, fear not, trust in God, and he will see that none of these things that you fear will happen to you. But real religion says, fear not. The things that you are afraid of are quite likely to happen to you. But they are nothing to be afraid of, for they are not the end. Real salvation is what it feels like when you are able to take a risk because you know that nothing can separate you from God. If you lose your reputation, if you lose your friends, if you lose even control over your own life, God will not lose you. Salvation is when you know that not even death could cut you off from the love of your Savior. And if you have never known that kind of assurance, or if you lost it a long time ago, it might be because you were afraid to take the risk and discover that it's true. But today you can discover that God is faithful. And you can take up a cross, unafraid, because you know you are walking where Jesus walks. And as we enter into this holy week, you can pay attention to every step along the way. You do not have to, in fear, skip over to Easter. You can pay attention to every step. You can face your own sin. You can face your own fear. You can take the terrible risk of telling yourself the truth. And we will always be tempted to walk away from the truth. But we can take that risk because on the other side of this journey is the greatest truth. We can risk Good Friday because Sunday is coming. And you can take the risk because the benefit is worth it. You can risk the truth 
because the truth will set you free. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.